Kira, what are you? Um, um, a banana. You're a oh. banana? Oh, I love bananas. <laughs> You're the tastiest banana that I've eaten all week. So it's Monday the 6th of April. We're a few weeks under lockdown now. I have, I've kind of lost count of the number of days. Uh, it's been since the 11th of March. How many days is it since the 11th of March? That was the date when the government uh, began to ramp up its measures for social isolation. Not yet for lockdown. That was the day when the World Health Organization declared that COVID-19 uh, was a pandemic and it was in the days after that that things began to uh, go into kind of hyper mode uh, and it was just over uh, two weeks later I think when things went into lockdown and all of those dates are just kind of blurry now it's like it's a routine has settled in I don't wear my watch anymore I haven't actually put the clock forward in my watch since it went um, forward, since the clocks went forward two weeks ago. I just don't wear my watch. I mean, obviously I have time on my phone, but time is a very different kind of relative concept these days because very little happens at any particular time. Uh, it's a strange phenomenon. Uh, I'm just sitting in the park watching people kick balls around. Um, Birds are chirping, daffodils are out, dandelions are out in full force. There's lots of yellow and white and green. Uh, a sea of flowers. Uh, and it feels like a kind of normal day, actually. Um, and yet we're in the middle of this lockdown. Uh, strange things are going on. Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister uh, of uh, Britain, is in hospital. Um, and it's a strange thing because it's very unusual for someone who's a political leader to be in that position, the position where essentially someone else is taking over the helms of government. Uh, the weird political robot that is Dominic Rabb. I've been thinking a lot about the, the way that I've talked about decision making and I've started just to do a little bit of research about the processes by which uh, organizations governments and so on are making decisions about the long-term plan for dealing with this virus and I've watched a number of different interviews and read a number of different articles a couple of them have been really really interesting so um, I watched an interview with Bill Gates it's not that I have any particular fondness for Bill Gates at all, obviously. He's a, um, a ruthless monopoly capitalist um, uh, who produces subpar software. Um, but he runs an organization, um, or founded an organization called the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who do all of this development work and one of the things that they particularly specialize in is advising governments on epidemiology um, uh, around like malaria and HIV AIDS and all sorts of other things. And uh, Gates talked about something that really surprised and 
worried me. Um, he said that he's been trying to convince the American government to do germ games, which is basically like a pandemic version of war games. And what that would entail is running a simulation, not like a computer simulation, but a real-world simulation, um, to train people to deal with a pandemic. So you just sort of imagine this pandemic and you set a bunch of um, uh, conditions and then you get people to respond to it in exactly the same way as they do war games because they do actual war games. They they get, you know, they scramble um, F-16 uh, fighter jets and, you know, um, American naval ships fire into the sky and all this kind of stuff and they, and they kind of imagine. And sometimes countries do it together. They do like joint exercises where they sort of pretend to fight against each other or pretend pretend to collaborate with each other and like billions of dollars hundreds of billions of dollars huge amounts of the world's wealth are poured into practicing war and it's obscene of course um and they do similar things for cyber terrorist alerts and terrorist alerts and in japan and korea and stuff they often do um earthquake or volcano um simulations and practices and rehearsals um brilliant they should be doing that that's a, that's a really good long-term thinking because you know that there will be earthquakes and you know that people will only be ready for earthquakes if you do uh, emergency response planning, preparation, um, uh, risk assessment and and rehearsals and all that kind of stuff. The, a global pandemic is like the biggest threat to humanity alongside climate change and the American government last did a serious pandemic simulation in 2001, 19 years ago. I just find that phenomenal, especially since um, in the intervening time, 9-11 happened and um, there was the anthrax scares and there was the attack the like a biological attack on the tokyo subway and like all um and then you've had like uh, sars and mers and ebola and um h1n1 and like lots of other pandemics um and so you just wonder why this hasn't been done it's just quite strange um so and the the other interview that i listened to which is uh, quite interested interesting was with um an epidemiologist from Stanford University who's a medical doctor and a PhD economist uh, and he is among the skeptics and it was really interesting to listen to him uh, because he um, he is a skeptic in the sense that he's critical of much of the government responses of total lockdown doesn't think the total lockdown is a solution or that it's merited it's that it's justified in scientific terms um, but speaks like a scientist so he doesn't talk away some of the journalists do that that you know all the politicians are mad and this is a hoax he spoke as a scientist and talked about how um, we just don't yet know the ratios of the uh, the rate of acuity the rate of um, lethality of the virus uh, because we can only test for the virus and not for people who've already had it. The antigen tests aren't reliable and don't work. And so it's impossible to come up with a number of how many of the people who've contracted the virus die. And the variables, so that the, like the lowest ratio versus the highest ratio are staggering numbers, which means that it's impossible to make um, accurate predictions. 
So he said, you know, we could be looking at a virus that in the United States will kill 50,000 people, and that merits a particular response, the kind of response that you get to seasonal flu. Uh, or if a different set of numbers are correct, it might be three or four million, in which case you don't have the seasonal flu style response. You have the complete shutdown, lockdown response. Um, if it's any higher than that, uh, you you need to go to a situation where lockdown might be absolutely indefinite in the sense that like you may not ever end the lockdown until such times as you have um, a vaccine or absolutely widespread available treatment so like you know huge numbers of ventilators massive numbers of highly trained staff uh, reliable antiviral drugs whatever it is um, that will that will keep down the numbers of fatalities um so it's really interesting that like there's debate going on in the like in the uh third sector and in the the medical world about just what it is that we're dealing with so then i also read um an article in the guardian that was about the same thing and they said so there are different options so option number one is that the the lockdown works it slows the spread we can't effectively treat it, but what we do is basically uh, we we slow down the rate of infection uh, so much so that hospitals can just about cope. And so the people are, are not overwhelmed, but there still is quite a high fatality rate, uh, but it's just spread over time. And so there are a lot of people who are saved because they get access to a ventilator. Uh, and the lockdown in that case lasts a long, 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 long time. Uh, a different option is that lockdown becomes a sort of intermittent thing. And I imagine that um, that will be very, very difficult to enforce because once you sort of release the pressure in the valve, I don't think that you'll get the, the people back into their houses again. We'll see about that. Then there's another option, which is that we, like I said earlier, we, we, we basically hide out and wait for a vaccine. And that could be a year to a year and a half. Uh, and that's pretty unthinkable uh, and then there's the one that seems most likely to me which is that eventually they develop um, more accurate testing they develop something that approaches a sort of immunity passport as Orwellian and scary and, and um, uh, fantastical as that sounds but where you begin to get sort of large numbers of the population here like I've had the virus um, I'm sweet I can go back to work and then you then use those people to to do something about um, getting the economy back to normal so um, the other thing that was um, discussed was that in the debate about all of these options uh, there seems to have been a kind of consensus around not overstating the issue of the economy because if we do that then it sounds like people are being um, uh, flippant and uh, just not taking human life seriously because why would you worry about the economy when when lives are at stake and there's a there's a bit of an issue with that um, characterization and a bit of an issue with that argument which is that the longer the economic shutdown goes on um, the, m the more lives it will claim uh, outside of coronavirus infection 
and so in in western countries that's likely to um, be as a result of pressure on hospitals that means that um, people die of for example um, cancers or heart disease or things that they might have got elected elective surgery for uh, it also means that people might um, commit suicide or die of uh, mental health related issues um, uh, stress and um, and depression and so on but it might also be huge numbers of people in developing countries because they they aren't well placed to cope with serious economic disruption and if serious economic disruption comes at the same time as levels of uh, coronavirus that are just overwhelming for them then there's there's no way that, uh, that their, either their economies or their health systems or their population will survive and so um, this uh, PhD uh, in economics uh, is called um, Dr. J. Bhattacharya uh, from Stanford um, talks about how the fact that we're not what we're not comparing is lives with livelihoods, but we're actually comparing lives with lives. And I just found that really interesting because I think it's um, it is important in these times not uh, not to accept too readily the dogmas. You know the dogma that uh, economics isn't important, or that civil liberties aren't important, or that there's only one solution to this because there's not. And you know we don't the, that basic number of how many people who get coronavirus die. That ratio we still have no idea what it is. Um, and so until that number is determined, um, anybody who says that they know what needs to happen is um, is you know either innumerate or uh, is more egotistical than they're giving themselves credit for. Uh, so these are the the thoughts that I'm making about the um, the decision making process that the world is confronted with, and I've tried today to think a little bit less about um, our situation and just a little bit more about what the long term prognosis is, if you like. And all that's left to say is that. We are the most successful species on the planet, and this is a piece of RNA, and we're going to destroy it.